Hello my lovelies and welcome to another episode of Primed for Crime. I am your host Liv and I'm very excited to have you here for another tiny little Halloween bonus. It's much smaller than the others but this one is actually two cases in one so two for the price of one. Um, So yeah they are a little bit smaller but they are Halloween related. So the first one is an LA hairstylist called Peter Fabiano who thought he was answering the door to a late trick-or-treater but that wasn't the case and the second one is quite a well-known one. It's um, called the Pixie Sticks Poisoner or more commonly known as the Candyman. So that will be the second case today. So before we get into the case, I just want to state that everything I talk about today is information I found online and I mean no disrespect to anybody involved or mentioned. So let's begin with case one. This is the trick-or-treat murder of Peter Fabiano. On Halloween night 1957 in Los Angeles, a hairstylist named Peter Fabiano walked down the stairs of his valley home to greet a belated trick-or-treater, or so he thought. I mean, it was late, it was about 11pm, and Peter had already got into bed with his wife Betty. I mean, in his mind, it was a little bit late for children to be knocking at the doors. I mean, I'm not entirely sure what it's like in America, I feel like they do it a bit earlier than us in the UK. I mean, we used to go out when it was dark, so maybe seven o'clock maybe. But nevertheless, the 35-year-old grabbed the bowl of remaining sweets and he answered the door. But a second later, Betty heard a deep voice and a loud pop that woke her up and her daughter, Judy. At the front door, she found her husband bleeding out in a pool of his own blood. So Judy immediately rang to the police officer's home next door, who called in the Valley Police Department, and Peter was very quickly taken to Sun Valley Hospital, where he was very unfortunately pronounced dead from the gunshot to his chest. The only witness to the shooting was a teenager who saw a car speeding away from the neighbourhood, which was unlikely, and there was no gun shells left at the scene, and nothing had been taken from the house, despite the family owning two successful hair and beauty shops, like they had a really lovely home, so the fact that nothing was taken suggests that it wasn't a robbery gone wrong. So Peter's shooting had the characteristics of a gang hit, but the only record of the stylist, um, sorry, the only record the hairstylist had was for a charge of bookmaking in 1948. He had no connection to any crime syndicate and that lead was very quickly terminated. So Peter and Betty had originally met in the 1940s when Betty was already divorced from her husband and was a single mother of two and the pair very quickly fell in love and began their marriage in New York and had moved to Los Angeles the year before Peter's death. So when Betty told the police of her account of Halloween night, she explained that she thought there were two people at the front door two men with one possibly pretending to be a woman 
and when asked if Peter had any enemies, she gave them one name, and that was Joan Rabel. So Joan Rabel was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1917 and had a career as a writer and photographer and she would sail around America. So in 1957 she arrived at Peter's salon looking for work after her divorce and Joan and Betty became very good friends in fact and she was welcomed with open arms into their family. But when Peter and Betty began having problems in their marriage, Betty actually moved in with Joan. So this really does seem like a very close friendship. However, Peter became very threatened by the closeness of the two women. And the Los Angeles Times described the pair's relationship as, quote, abnormal, end quote, which in the 1950s was kind of code for homosexual I guess I think they thought that they were having a more intimate relationship so Betty eventually decided that her marriage to Peter was worth saving and she told Peter about the affair that she had been having with Joan so the couple reconciled and Betty agreed to never see Joan again the same year, in 1957, Joan met Golden Pfizer, a medical secretary, and just like Betty and Joan, the pair became fast friends and spent their free time together, you know, drinking coffee, gossiping, just hanging out. But it's reported that Golden was also gay and had spent her life suppressing her feelings and had married a man named Herbert, who was a naval pharmacist, but she had recently just divorced him. So it was during these coffee mornings with her new friends that Joan spoke to her about, quote, evil, end quote, Peter Fabiano, which was her employer. You know, Joan was so heartbroken and angry that Betty had gone back to her husband and she very clearly wanted revenge on this man. So Joan began to uh, seduce Golden as she had Betty and eventually somehow convinced Golden to killed Peter for her. So Golden went and bought a 38 calibre Smith and Wesson from a shop in Pasadena under the kind of pretend that she wanted the weapon for personal protection. She then proceeded to wait outside his home on Halloween night in a car that Joan had borrowed from a friend and then waited until all the lights in the house went out then Golden approached the home in a superhero eye mask and just blatantly committed the murder. She then decided to dispose of the gun in a storage locker in the LA branch of Bullock Department Store, but an anonymous tip led detectives to the weapon and, subsequently, uh, to her door just two weeks later. She was arrested in a Hollywood home where she told the police, quote, it's a relief to get it off my mind, end quote. And Joan was also arrested and the two women went through several examinations with psychiatrists as the court believed that the homosexuality may have made them unfit to stand trial. I mean, obviously that would never, never happen now. Um, but at the time, that was the kind of mind frame that people had. One of the psychiatrists wrote about Golden Pfizer, quote, the only thought she had was that she had to save her friend, Joan Rabel, from an evil person, end quote. 
And, I mean, obviously we don't know exactly what Joan was saying to her. Maybe she was just trying to protect her friend, but, I mean, obviously better ways to go about it. So both women did plead not guilty, um, but eventually they did change their plea. So Pfizer pleaded insanity and claimed she was just easily influenced. And Joan, on the other hand, refused to comment blank straight out did not comment throughout the whole hearing and it's reported that she wore like a constant strange smile during the trial and they were both eventually charged with second degree murder and were sentenced to five years to life in prison. Golden Pfizer was released and stayed in Los Angeles. I'm not exactly sure when she was released from prison, but she did die in 1998 when she was 83 years old. And again, there's little information about Joan Rabel, but it's assumed that she was released about the same time as Pfizer. And as for Betty, she ended up selling the beauty business and sadly died in 1999 in Palm Desert, California. And it is unknown if she had a hand in her husband's death. Um, There has been some talk about that. But again, we don't know. And this is all that I could find on this case. And now on to our second story of The Poisoned Pixie Sticks. On a rainy Halloween night in 1974, the children of Deer Park, Texas were out knocking on all the doors going for Halloween treats, you know, trick or treat. So Ronald Clark O'Brien was an optician and he was also out watching over his kids, eight-year-old Timothy and five-year-old Elizabeth. And as they trick-or-treated in a suburban neighbourhood near their home, he was joined by O'Brien's neighbour, Jim Bates, and also his young son. One of the houses the group approached had all of its lights switched off, but the kids banged on the door anyway, you know, a vague promise that candy was there, you know, too enticing. You want to try and get as much candy as you can, obviously. And I don't know why I'm saying candy, because it's obviously sweets where I come from. But there was no answer at this house. Either the people inside were hiding, they didn't like Halloween, or nobody was home. So the kids were obviously growing impatient, so they ran off in the other direction to go and find another house, and Jim followed, which meant that Ronald was left alone. So catching up with the others a short while after, Ronald had some good news, and he produced from his hand a handful of 21-inch pixie sticks, and I'm not sure what we call them over here in the UK, but it's them plastic tubes, and you kind of push the top of it, and then the kind of sour powder comes out of it. Um, So it turns out that somebody had been in the dark house all along and the sweets were handed out, one to each child and one for Jim's other child and another to a 10-year-old boy that Ronald had recognised from church as the group walked home. So before bed, Timothy O'Brien was allowed one treat from the evening's hall and he picked his pixie sticks tube. But the powdered sugar was stuck in the straw, which, I mean, isn't unlikely not unlikely. It's not uncommon, should I say. I mean, you know, if you kind of put it straight into your mouth and your saliva gets on it, it obviously clumps up. So he, 
that it was stuck in the straw and it wasn't until his dad had helped him to dislodge it that he could take his first mouthful of it and it obviously tasted bitter and he complained about it so Ronald grabbed him a glass of Kool-Aid to wash the taste away. However, less than an hour later, poor little Timothy was found dead. Former Harris County Prosecutor Mike Hinton said, quote, It was just a coincidence that I was working the police intake that night. I got a call from the Pasadena Police Department and they told me an eight-year-old boy had died. He was rushed to hospital but he'd already passed, end quote. So obviously wanting to get his investigation underway, Hinton called Dr. Joseph A. Yashimsik, the chief medical examiner of nearby Harris County, and I'm really sorry if I got that name wrong. So Hinton said, quote, I told him the situation and he asked what the young man's breath smelled like, end quote. So a call to the morgue revealed that the scent of almonds was coming from the boy's mouth, which is commonly known more of cyanide and this is what Dr Yajimsik said it's cyanide so an autopsy proved the medical examiner's hunch a pathologist said that Timothy had consumed enough cyanide to kill two people and tests later found that the top two inches of the pixie stick had been packed full of this poison Police officers managed to recover the remaining sweets from the other children before any of them had any chance to dig in. You know, thank God they got there in time. And they noted that whoever was responsible had used staples to seal the pixie sticks after tampering with them. And Hinton said, quote, That's what saved another boy's life that night. They found him in bed with the sweet in his hand, but he wasn't strong enough to undo the staples, end quote. I mean, God, who would have thought a staple saved somebody's life? That is just absolutely just, oh. The police took Ronald back to the neighbourhood the group had been trick-or-treating in so he could direct them to the house where he'd picked up the pixie sticks. But he was stumped because he couldn't find the house and said he'd never seen the face of the person responsible and that they'd just emerged from the doorway and handed him the candy. So obviously this made investigators start to become a little bit more suspicious of Ronald. Hinton said, quote, A few days went by and it was incredibly frustrating. So they took O'Brien out again and were pretty firm with him, end quote. And thankfully, kind of, this tactic worked. Ronald's memory was jogged and he pointed towards the house. So the man who lived there wasn't home, so officers went to his place of work, which was Houston's William Hobby P. Airport, and arrested him in front of all of his colleagues. So as far as they were aware, the mystery was over. Case closed. That was it. Apart from the fact that this man had an alibi. Hinton said, quote, It turned out he was working that night. His wife and daughter were home and it turned out the lights early as they'd run out of sweets, or candy, sorry, end quote. Colleagues and timesheets confirmed the man's story and it only made the suspicions even bigger and Hinton said, quote, I'd also heard O'Brien was angry at his relatives for not staying up the night of Timmy's funeral, which was odd, end quote. 
Apparently, Ronald had written a song about Jesus and Timothy joining the Lord in heaven and had grown agitated when his grieving family wouldn't stay up late to watch a recording of the performance being broadcasted on television, which, I mean, obviously grief plays part differently in everybody's lives, but Hinton kind of did think something strange was definitely going on. Soon after, whilst he was teaching a class at the Pasadena Police Academy, detectives arrived at Hinton's door. They had discovered that Ronald had recently taken out life insurance policies on both of his children, which was $10,000 per child in January of that year, and then a further 20000 on each a month before Halloween. Investigators already knew that Ronald owed debts of over $100,000, so when they found this out, he'd, that he'd called um, them up and obviously put on a huge life insurance on these children, he'd actually asked them to have the payout at 9am the morning after Timothy's death. I mean, it's quite clear that the case against him was beginning to come together pretty rapidly. So a warrant was granted and the search of O'Brien's house offered up a pair of scissors with plastic residue attached to it, which was similar to that found on the cyanide-laced sweets. O'Brien was then arrested and taken in for questioning and as the investigation continued, Hinton said that the evidence started to stack up against Ronald. He said, quote, It turned out O'Brien was going to community college and in class would ask his professor questions like... What is more lethal, cyanide or another type of poison? Why would somebody ask that? End quote. And Hinton's quite right. I mean, I'm all for gaining knowledge, but not when you're going to kill somebody. Another witness who worked for a chemical company in Houston told police that a man had come in to buy some cyanide, but quickly left after being told that the smallest amount he could buy was £5. Hinton said, quote, The man from the store said he couldn't identify O'Brien, but he remembered that his customer was wearing a beige or blue smock, like a doctor. O'Brien was an optician, and that is exactly the uniform he wore to work. End quote. But still, this was years before DNA testing and contactless debit cards, and police couldn't put the pixie sticks in Ronald's hands or prove that he'd bought any cyanide, so the 30-year-old optician remained innocent. Ronald entered a not guilty plea, with his defence blaming the tainted sweets on some untraceable boogeyman, in a sense. You know, just a, a sick individual who was using the cover of Halloween to poison unsuspecting children. But friends, family and even co-workers all testified against the man the press were now calling the Candyman. And on June 3rd, 1975, it took just 46 minutes for a jury to return a guilty verdict for one charge of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. An hour later, it was decided that Ronald would be executed by electric chair. O'Brien's appeal avenues were explored and ultimately turned down for nearly a decade after his guilty verdict. So it wasn't until March 31st, 1984, when all routes to survival had been exhausted, that he was finally put to death for his crime. By this point, the US Supreme Court had ruled the electric chair a cruel and unusual punishment, so instead, 
his life was ended with a lethal injection. Outside the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville, a crowd of about 300 people gathered to hear the man, the Halloween poisoner, had met his end by shouting trick or treat and throwing candy into anti-death penalty protesters. At 12.48am when Ronald was pronounced dead, Hinton was in his childhood home in Amarillo, an eight-hour drive from Huntsville, and that evening he'd gone to his favourite lake, a fishing pond, with a rod in his hand and drunk a beer in celebration as he drifted out into the darkness. And you know, before and since the Deer Park poisoning, there's rumours of dodgy sweets been handed out, and it's always surfaced around Halloween, you know, but whether the fear is that the sweets have got broken glass or razor blades or if they're actually drugs, you know, it can worry a lot of parents. I mean, even in 2000, there was a man in Minneapolis and he was charged with putting needles into snicker bars that he'd handed out to trick-or-treaters. And the only victim he claimed was a teenager who got just a slight prick from the hidden sharp object. You know, since Timothy O'Brien, there hasn't been a single case where a child has actually died after consuming contaminated Halloween treats. But, you know, it's always going to be a real possibility in this world that we live in. And that's quite scary to think of, really. That is really quite scary. And that concludes today's two cases for our little, tiny little Halloween special. I do hope you've enjoyed and I do hope to have you back for another episode. However, in the meantime, if you are still craving a little bit more true crime, then you can head over to the Prime for Crime TikTok where I post small snippets of cases daily. And yeah, it's nice to interact with you guys and I hope you have an absolutely amazing Halloween. Honestly, I'm very excited. And um, yeah, I will see you next week for another episode. See you later.